Hello and welcome to Keanu Club, like a cool breeze over the mountains. This is episode 17, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today, we have a very special guest. You know, we've only had once recently as a brand new guest to the Cage Club podcast family. We have Kara O'Regan. Hello, Kara. Hey, Joey. Hey, Mike. How are you guys? Good. How are you? I'm all right. Believe it or not, this was the first time I ever saw this movie. That is unbelievable to me. It's, I think it's unbelievable to me, too. But all I know is that when Mike and I sort of announced to our little circle of friends that we were going to do Keanu Club, I can't even measure how quickly you responded and said, I want to do Bill and Ted. I mean, even before we sort of put out a casting call for who wants what, you were in there like, I want this. And we said, all right, if you're going to do this one, you need to make sure you do both movies and the TV series. You're like, I'm in for all of it. Mm -hmm. So what about Bill and Ted made you so eager and excited to talk about these wonderful, wonderful movies with us? Well, for one thing, I love time travel. Always a good okay. time. The other thing is that the Bill and Ted franchise is like probably my favorite buddy comedy franchise in general. And I actually prefer Bogus Journey to Excellent Adventure, but I love them both. And actually rewatching Excellent Adventure for this reminded me how good of a movie it is. So I just wanted to like scoop it up before anyone else could claim it. Well, you were so enthusiastic that we had no choice but to give it to you. And in Bogus Journey news, this week that we're recording it, Shout Factory just announced that they're going to put that on a Blu-ray this fall, the first time ever on Blu-ray. And it comes with, like, you can buy some collector's edition with a collectible Rufus figurine, I think. So I know Mike, as a big fan of finding, like, little G-Force toys and stuff from, from Cage Club, I'm sure he's, you know, whether or not he buys it is one thing, but I'm sure he's eyeing up that Rufus figure to, to put on the shelf alongside all the, the Keanu movies. Well, it's funny you mentioned action figures, because when I was a young lad, I had Bill and Ted action figures. Big fan of this franchise. I, I kind of grew up with Bill and Ted and kind of like adopted their way of speaking when I was in middle school for a little while and grew out my hair long. Uh, <laughs> I was like fortunate enough to see this in theaters, too. This was like maybe my second or third sort of run in with time travel i think the first being back to the future and then the other being superman the movie uh when he turns back time at the end of that so this movie had a pretty big impact on me i went on and am still like a giant science fiction fan and, and a big fan of this franchise i kind of feel like they stem from the tradition of laurel and hardy and abbott and costello mm -hmm. but but there's no straight man in this duo, you know, so like they're sort of both the fool, which is, I think, kind of new and, and really delightful. And later down the line, this will this would kind of go on to influence Beavis and Butthead and I think even Wayne and Garth to a degree. Oh, yeah, for sure. What I love about the time travel in this movie is because it's a comedy, it, there's no, I don't know if respect is the right word, but there's no respect paid to, like, the ramifications of their actions throughout mm -hmm. history. Like, there's so many time travel movies that spend all this time, like, you can't go back, you can't change anything. Like, I mean, that's sort of the whole thing what Back to the Future is about. Everything you do can change the course of time. These guys are just going back in time and kidnapping history's biggest names and bringing them to 1988 San Dimas. I just love, you know, because it was never going to be that kind of movie where the mechanics of time travel matter. But what's great about it is just 
how reckless, like, what <laughs> reckless disregard they have for any kind of respect for time travel history. Mm-hmm. And they just straight up break several very important rules of, of time travel fiction in general, which is great. <laughs> yeah, I like how this is paradox free in a way. It's it's almost as if it was all meant to happen and it mm-hmm. the way that it did, you know, that Bill and Ted always went back and interacted with these people and and perhaps that's why we know them to be famous today. But but the stakes are really high. You know, the fate of the universe, the future of everything, every the way of life basically depends on them passing history. So the gloves are off. Basically, do whatever you have to to pass that class, uh, whether that means, you know, mucking up the time stream. Go at it. <laughs> <laughs> what I really like about the way that they do time travel is toward the end of the movie, and I know we'll sort of go back through it a little bit more chronologically, but like toward the end of the movie, when they're sort of in a bind at the police station trying to bail everybody out of jail because they all get arrested for one reason or another. They know to use time travel to their advantage and they're basically able just to sort of like will anything into being because they know that in the future they're going to go back to the past and make the present possible. Like it's, it works in terms of like serious time travel, but it's also just incredibly funny. Yeah, it's almost the one instance of causality is like this police department. It was almost the one time where the movie set and followed its own rules, but it was also to extremely comedic effect and done really successfully. I do like that you use the word causality, and in about 15 years from now, Keanu Reeves is going to have a very big lesson in causality, cause and effect with the Merovingian in The Matrix Reloaded. <laughs> so maybe this is his first introduction into causality and you know how like the butterfly effect, essentially. So the movie begins with an introduction from George Carlin, mm-hmm. right? Like that mm-hmm. we're in the year 2688, and he's like, hey, this is what's going on. He mythologizes these guys and says, like, the, the two great ones ran into <laughs> some problems and basically needed some help. Otherwise, their entire civilization, as they knew it, would not exist because these guys, these two sort of, I don't want to say stoners, but, you know, sort of just like surf bros with you know, limited attention span in school, like, they're going to become the saviors of this future society. Welcome to the future. San Dimas, California, 2688. And I'm telling you, it's great here. The air is clean, the water's clean. Even the dirt is clean. Bowling averages are way up. Mini golf scores are way down. And we have more excellent water slides than any other planet we communicate with. I'm telling you, this place is great. But it almost wasn't. You see, 700 years ago, the two great ones ran into a few problems. So now I have to travel back in time to help them out. If I should fail to keep these two on the correct path, the basis of our society will be in danger. Yeah, and it's not just the future. It's like a utopian future. Like Rufus Mm -hmm. says... It's great here. The air is clean. The water is clean. Even the dirt is clean. So it's not just a matter of not having things turn out really terrible, but like making sure that they turn out in this way that's like really beautiful and perfect. Yeah, they they even mentioned that they communicate with other planets and other species and there's a harmony across the universe. And that's what's threatened if Bill and Ted don't pass their history exam, which is which is really awesome, is that the fate of history is in the balance and they have to pass a history exam to save history. I just thought that was just another clever twist. 
I'm honestly not sure at the very end when they actually give their history exam, like how good their exam actually is. They sort of have absorbed the knowledge of these people that they rescued, which they're they're much smarter in terms and much more cultured in terms of history than they were at the start of the movie. But really, they just got a bunch of guys to like talk on their behalf, and apparently it was good enough for them. To, mm. Like it's just like to, to actually dissect their exam, which is terrific and like you know an a plus stage show with lighting cues and smoke and special effects and just amazing it's just sort of funny to like look at like what their actual exam is and say oh really they didn't do much they just sort of gathered all these people and just sort of let them do their thing yes but we see like over the course of like the second half of the movie different excerpts from other people's speeches that are not great like there's yeah. the football player who eventually just says San Dimas High School football rolls and like the crowd goes wild so it's a yeah. pretty low bar that is set by their peers and the exam itself is how would a historical figure view 1988 San Dimas California and I thought it was kind of clever that later in the movie, these historical figures are going to go to the mall and sort of have to clean the house and do domestic work and interact with the 1980s for real. And so when they get up on stage, they're actually speaking from experience. Perhaps in a way they did do the work for Bill and Ted, but Bill and Ted did gather them together and they do put on one hell of a show i felt like it was almost more like a rock show you know like Mm -hmm. that's sort of the wild stallions influence uh that's the name of the band that they create that goes on to achieve peace in the future and everything but uh yeah so that was really good i mean i would even just give them an a for spectacle even if if they just had (laughs) the idea of hiring lookalikes and having them go up, but you know, you could have saved a lot of time and effort if Rufus was just like, here's a thousand dollars and go hire a bunch of these uh, lookalikes, get them up on stage and have them speak about who they are. You know, this is the second movie in the last, I think, four maybe, with along with Permanent Record, where these kids, like, you know, high school kids, put on a spectacular mm-hmm. show. You know what I mean? Remember at Permanent Record at the end, they had this ornate, elaborate, basically on the caliber of Dangerous yeah. Liaisons, like sort of this elaborate stage production of a high school play and here you know they have a show on par with their idol eddie van halen you know it's something that van halen would probably be proud of that this is like a rock show in this high school auditorium yes and as somebody who spent a lot of time watching like teens plot things movies I think we generally underestimate the power and determination that teenagers have to, like, pull something ridiculous off. Mm -hmm. And this is just one kind of hyperbolic example of that. Yeah, it's almost like the ultimate night of cramming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what they go through. Well, they try sort of the traditional form of cramming, right, where they're, like, both just sort of quizzing each other, or at least Bill is quizzing Ted in his bedroom. Okay, Ted. George Washington. One father of our country two born on president's day three the dollar bill guy bill you ever made a mushroom out of his head it's like this like alaska okay um had wooden teeth chased moby dick that's captain ahab dude oh wait remember disney world hall of presidents Yeah, good. What did he say? Welcome to the Hall of Presidents. And then they they sort of get kicked out so that that Bill's dad can have sex with Bill's stepmom, who's just supposedly three years older than them, right? 
and they go down to the Circle K, and then their their second form, their their backup mode of studying is just to ask random passersby who who these different people are in history. Yeah, that really gained a lot of like sympathy for the characters. I, I remember seeing this for the first time as a little kid, not especially liking school, thinking it was the greatest and having kind of a hard time now and again. Uh, having that feeling of anxiety of, you know, there's a major test the next day and I'm not prepared for it. And you just sort of procrastinate to the point where you just don't know what you're going to do until you stay up all night and just force your way through it. And I definitely started getting that sense at the moment when they go to the Circle K and, and they're just asking the lady who works there if she knows when the Mongol invasion was. <laughs> what did you say? Like, I just work here. Like, I, I don't yeah, know. I yeah. just work here. The one other thing that stood out more this time than the first time is that Ted, you know, if he doesn't pass history and graduate, um, he's going to be sent off to military academy. You know, his dad is really in his face about, you know, you he basically already got his plane ticket, has no faith in his son to pass history whatsoever. So that is, you know, kind of why um, if they don't pass history, they're going to separate and split up and therefore the band will never form and make their music and that can't happen. And they really need to sort of go a long way. Like, from the beginning of the movie, Keanu Reeves' Ted's grasp on history is that Napoleon is that short, dead dude, Joan of Arc is Noah's wife, and Caesar is that salad dressing dude. So, like, they have to go from that level of understanding to getting an A-plus in this presentation tomorrow. Otherwise, the dynamic duo, the Wild Stallions, are getting split up, and, you know, he's getting shipped off to Alaska. And even though it's sort of, it's, it's a much more light-hearted take on entering the war. I mean, I didn't really think about it when we were watching, but just you mentioning it there, Mike, it reminds me of the very first Cage Club movie, Best of Times, where Nicolas Cage is like afraid to go off to war. And here it's almost like played off as a joke in sort of this terrible tenure of high school. But like, it's sort of like, if you want to treated as a serious issue i think you can then you know keanu is worried yeah i mean it, it sets the stakes pretty high i spoke to your principal today ted he said you're failing history me and bill he also said that if you fail history you flunk out of school you know what that would mean don't you ted that i would have to go to oates military academy sir uh-huh i spoke to colonel oates this morning he's Anxious to meet you, Ted. Dude, we gotta pass. Otherwise, there's no more band. Why? My dad's sending me to military school. Where? Alaska. Yeah, and Keanu isn't a fighter. He's a lover, you know? His character in this movie will even recite lyrics to a princess, and I thought that was great. And funny enough, they are sort of put through the grinder in this film and by the end of the movie he has sort of gone to war in several different time zones and kind of come through the ringer and survived and i almost feel like he would shrug off military school if at the end of this film if he had to go but thankfully he makes it and he doesn't have to should we get to rufus i guess we're at the circle k yeah we are at the circle k and strange things are afoot at the circle k Rufus, George Carlin, shows up in a telephone booth. And now here's a question that this might be obvious, and I'm sure that you guys are both more knowledgeable in both this world and the world I'm about to ask for, but is this a nod to Doctor Who, or is this just like a coincidence? Or, like, why is it a time-traveling phone booth? Like, it seems, like, it it almost seemed to me that if this was going to be like a nod to Doctor Who, there should be other sort of time-travel references throughout, and I don't really, I don't pick up on it. Yeah, so... 
The story behind that is that actually in the original script, Rufus was a much younger person. He was like, you know, like the creepy old dude in high school. I think he's described as like a 28-year-old high school senior who had a sidekick dog named Dog Rufus, which makes me giggle. But that version of Rufus actually drove a van. And I think they called it like the time van or something that this was their mode of time travel. But because Back to the Future was still so recent, they decided that's a little too close. So they switched it to a phone booth. Now, every account that I've read says that that's a total coincidence. Like, to your point, I think that that seems to be the case. Now, in Doctor Who, it's not actually a phone booth. It's a police box. They're different. That's true. I mean, it's it's not that important of the distinction. They're kind of the same. They're the same shape, you know. And... There's a lot of really important differences between the TARDIS and the phone booth in this film. Most importantly, possibly, is in Doctor Who, the police box is actually larger on the inside than it looks from the outside. And that doesn't seem to be the case with the phone booth, which gets kind of comical the more people that they try and shove it. Yeah, Bill even says to Ted, like, Ted, you're too tall. Like, we basically just, we don't have enough room in here. Yeah, and then there's that great scene where they're all shoved in there. Kind of like, there's like eight people sitting in a bathtub together, like, you know, going through the circuits of time. I mean, I don't know either if it's intentionally supposed to riff on the TARDIS, but I do think it works as a joke if you're familiar with Doctor Who, whether Mm -hmm. it's intentional or not. They make a joke about the phone booth looking like an outhouse when they travel to the Old West, you know, Mm. so... I wouldn't really put it past them if they were, like, just scrambling to find um, something to use as a time travel device. And we're like, well, Doctor Who isn't really syndicated in America during the 80s. And, you know, people, only hardcore science fiction fans may pick up on that. And if you do, then you're in on the joke. And I kind of love it. Technically, it's not even a phone booth. It's a giant gold obelisk of some type, right? When we see it in the future, it is sort of they're in, like, the time chamber with the three time masters and Rufus and this big solid gold brick like falls to the ground. And then later it kind of forms into the phone booth. And then the TARDIS was also designed to blend in to whatever civilization it goes to and is sort of stuck on the police box. And I kind of think like if this was supposed to do that, it would change whichever century they go into. But it's like, no, they, they go to like ancient Greece and they see the phone booth is just like sticking there. Or they're in the middle <laughs> of a medieval forest and it's just a phone booth sticking in the middle of the forest. So <laughs> visually, comically, I think it works really well. And also, I mean, it's so hard for us to even remember now, like the ubiquity of phone booths during Mm -hmm. that time period. Like, it's almost as bizarre to see a phone booth today as it would be to see a phone booth in that medieval forest, you know. But like, (laughs) when this movie was actually made, it was everywhere and so it works as like they could have just been looking around thinking like oh what do we use as a time machine see a phone booth and be like oh that's the thing you know i think also if you had caught doctor who in passing on like pbs or something once or twice that's an image that might kind of get 
filed away in the back of your head without you realizing it. So I, I believe them when they say it was a coincidence. I don't think it was that much on purpose, but it is like a fun thing if you are familiar with Doctor Who. Absolutely. And so so Rufus, we cut from the, the Circle K, I think, to the future, right? And Rufus is there. And it's weird to hear these like very prim and proper and sort of leaders of society talking like Bill and Ted and just saying to each other, like, be excellent to each other and party on, dude. And we know that these are things that Bill and Ted say, but we don't at this time really know why they're mm-hmm. saying it. But it's, it's funny to me to see these, like, very, very, not uptight, but just, like, sort of reserved people talking like bros from 1988. Like, it's just, it's terrific. And this is when, you know, Rufus needs to save the day. And so this is when he travels back in time to modern day to recruit the two most important people in the history of the universe. Yeah, I just love, it was probably budgetary possibly, but I just love the look of the future. It's just so, just simple and plain and, you know, so far in the future too that you'd be like, all right, I just don't comprehend why, you know, I just go with the design and I like it a lot. And of these three sort of dignitaries, I don't know if they're the timekeepers or who they are, but the guy in the middle, Clarence Clemens, notably from the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band. Oh, yeah. he looks familiar. I didn't actually bother to look up who he was. I mean, it's crazy. In this short into Keanu Club, we've had Lou Reed in Permanent Record, and we've had George Clinton in The Night Before, and now we have Clarence Clemens and Jane Wideland who is going to play Joan of Arc in this from the Go Go. So it's a rock and roll filled. Well, it's sort of fitting because this is the first real, I mean, this is the the Keanu music movie to end all Keanu music movies. Already in the first 17 movies, I mean, all the way back to Stereoteen and Letting Go, I mean, he's been tied to rock and roll and music and like Mm -hmm. probably close to half the films he's done so far, right? And so it makes sense on sort of a bigger scale to have all these rock icons in these Keanu movies because that's sort of who he is either as a person or... You know, we'll, we'll get to the dog star stuff later in his career, but like, it, it makes sense to have rock people more in these, just the way it made sense to have like Elvis in Cage movies. Oh, interesting point. <laughs> it is kind of strange how many movie bands he's been in already, and it's cool though because he brings that to the role as a person in his personal life is into rock music. I think stuff like that makes Ted feel more genuine and believable. He's playing a part of of, of himself. But it's also worth pointing out that in this movie, he's not very good at at all at guitar, (laughs) even though they're sort of going to create the greatest album of all time, and that Rufus even has it with a cool little, like, animated video CD cover, even though it still looks like it's a CD, or who knows what kind of digital media we have in 2688, you know, they're not very good, and they, I mean, they have this, like, sort of existential crisis at the beginning of the movie, like, what do we do next as a band? And their goal is to get Eddie Van Halen to play guitar, and they say, to get Eddie Van Halen, we need to have this like killer music video. But to have the killer music video, we need to learn how to play the instruments. It's like a never-ending cycle of things that like they're just never going to get anywhere just because they're terrible at playing guitar. Yeah, and they even say, we also need Eddie Van Halen to get good at playing the guitar. So apparently, Eddie Van Halen, after the movie came out, joked or said that he would have gladly appeared in the movie, but oh, nobody man. asked him. And so he just wasn't, he just wasn't yeah, in the movie. That does seem, though, at the time, to ask Eddie Van Halen to do anything. like That just seems monumental, because he was like the Michael Jordan of rock and roll, and it just unattainable is how it seemed. 
this movie also ran into like production mm-hmm. issues, so I'm sure that it's not like there was really like, hey, like this is a huge studio movie, like this is when we know it's going to be out. It seemed like it sort of had trouble getting made and sort of getting distributed and everything, and sort of was delayed at least a year, if not two years. I can see on a bigger movie with more established stars or whatever having a rock icon as a cameo, but on this kind of movie, I can't imagine he would have said yes. I think I, I, I would tend to agree with your assessment there, Mike. But they did get George Carlin, and right off the bat, he's breaking the fourth wall and he's addressing the audience, and he really is drawing me in. Like he's personable, he's charismatic, and he really seems to like put you at ease and ready for what's to come as this sort of guide. You know, he's almost guiding the audience in the way he's going to guide Bill and Ted through their adventure. And I almost wonder if maybe, you know, that was as high as they were going as far as big stars at the time, because he was a mega comedian himself, especially like 88, 89. He was really on a roll and really big and famous. He had been for many years already, but I remember as a kid, George Carlin being like a big, big comic when there weren't that many comics making a big name for themselves. And uh, maybe some of the other money went to the time travel effects, which I feel still hold up pretty well for what they're trying to conceptualize. Where are we, dude? These are the circuits of history, gentlemen. They'll take us to any point in time we wish. How? Modern technology, William. And interestingly, like later in the film, when there's a lot of the time travel happening from like era to era to era, you can tell that they needed to like save money so they don't actually show the phone booth dematerializing yeah. or materializing. And we'll sort of spend less and less time in each time period mm-hmm. as we traveled. They only had enough for like three or four set pieces. We get a nice Wild West. We get a good medieval sort of castle thing going on. And then after that, it almost turns into this time travel montage in a way mm-hmm. where they're collecting their specimens and Well, their first stop through history is to go to Austria, where the French have just invaded, and they kidnap Napoleon, and they bring him back to the present and just sort of dump him off with, who? it's it's Ted's younger brother, right? And he just says, you know, keep an eye on this guy, and they go, like, on an ice cream double date, and they have this gigantic ice cream sundae. I mean, the whole the whole joke of the movie is that you have these, like, the most important or, you know, the biggest names in history, and this is just the guy who's dumped on, like, what's probably, like, a 13-year-old kid out on a double date eating ice cream and playing bowling, just going bowling. Like, it's it's just, like, poor Napoleon. Yeah, and they don't even kidnap him on purpose. That's what makes his kidnapping so funny to me, is that Mm -hmm. it didn't even occur to them to, like, go back in time and get people until they tried to go back to their time and Napoleon happens to get exploded into the wormhole and follows them back into the present day. Ted, I have a most excellent idea. Grab his legs, we gotta get him inside. I think I figured out a way to pass our report. How? Well, we got one historical figure here. Maybe we can go back and get some more. Yeah. Deacon, you have to watch this guy. His name is Napoleon. He is a very famous French dude. We have decided to collect other important figures from history for an oral report we are doing. While we are gone, you are not to let him out of your sight. And I think Napoleon may be my favorite character in the movie, aside from Bill and Ted. Like, he gets the most exposure to the modern day, and yeah. by the end, he's kind of seems like he's almost completely acclimated 
it just seems like the writers were really digging into Napoleon hard in this movie. <laughs> and I loved um, when they went to Chuck E. Cheese. They didn't spot Cage with any hookers at Chuck E. Cheese there, luckily. Um, <laughs> frozen ground. Yeah, it's just great stuff. And what I love about this, I mean, sort of the... I don't know if it's the irony or the coincidence is that like most of these people that they wind up capturing all sort of experience these like really kind of brutal deaths. You know, they're either assassinated or executed. And I mean, Napoleon has the the Battle of Waterloo. I, if I know my history right, maybe I'm lowering myself to Bill and Ted's levels. But didn't he get badly defeated at Waterloo? Or... I'm pretty sure that was his giant military failure. They make some but, Waterloo jokes in the film, like the mm-hmm. Water Loops water park that he goes to, and then at the end in the presentation when he's explaining his battle plan, and Ted's like, "I don't even, I don't think it's gonna work." He just kind of scraps the whole thing. What I love about Napoleon in modern day is that he's, you know, remembered as even though he lost at Waterloo, he's this iconic, legendary sort of general, mm-hmm. right? He's even outclassed by just some guy who runs the bowling alley. <laughs> yeah. like, he just sort of gets kicked out of the bowling alley, but like. Just essentially like kind of a hillbilly kind of guy. Even Napoleon, this legendary general, has no match to just some random schmuck in 1988. Well, to me, he's like just as much of a doofus as Bill and Ted are. And I mean, part of that is definitely the whole like fish out of water, person out of time thing. He's like fish out of water, but he's also kind of a sleaze a little bit like when they're at the end when they're at the police station to break everybody out of jail and they tell him to stay in the car with missy who is now bill's stepmom this hot young probably 20 or 30 years younger than bill's dad napoleon just starts like sliding in and like gonna put the moves on missy this guy that not only is he a fish out of water you know if he was alive today he would be like bill and ted probably yeah definitely and the actor that played napoleon actually i read that he's actually like a a method actor and stayed in character throughout the filming and even improvised his own French lines. <laughs> and I just love that so much because he really like, he so perfectly embodies Napoleon. And I wish that my French were better because there were certain things that I picked up that made me giggle, but I think would have been a lot funnier if I actually knew what he was saying. So like at the at the end when he's doing the presentation, he says something about defeating the Russians, something involving a water slide, using something involving a water slide. <laughs> and I just thought that was so hilarious. I really like the way all the historical figures are portrayed in this film, really. I just think that they're all really good lookalikes, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, they picked good iconic people as well you know people that would stand out in a crowd but they all just acclimate the time travel so easily and that is so great because they're just not worrying about any of that stuff and part of that is what makes it so funny for me it's just just everything is just so matter of fact and everyone you know bill and ted's just go with it attitude is so infectious that they all just adopt it and they all just sort of are along for the ride the one that is sort of the most game of all of them, sort of in all regards, is mm-hmm. Billy the Kid, which is where they go next. They just show up completely out of place in the <laughs> Wild West. And Billy the Kid sort of comes in, just says, I need two guys. and like, we're with you, Mr. the Kid. I need two men. Who's with me? We're with you, Billy the Kid. Here's the deal. Would I win? I keep. Would you win? I keep. Sounds good, Mr. The Kid. 
he's going to cheat and give them sort of winning poker hands. They're going to take everybody for their money and then get out of town and split the winnings. But things don't go according to plan, and they sort of all get kicked out. But then as they escape, Billy the Kid's just there along. Like, he sort of becomes, like, the third mm-hmm. member, like, almost like a third musketeer. Like, he's just, like, with them. He's like, I'm, I'm down for And anything. he even starts using their parlance of, like, calling things excellent and bogus, which is so great. He's going to help the newcomers as well when they pick up guys like Socrates and the, he, he'll watch after them. And I just love how Billy the Kid becomes like this guide in a way as well. I like that they are chased out of a few time periods for one reason or another, but it's never because they're essentially aliens from another time and space. It's just like they just sort of get into their own trouble. And like that's what makes it funny. Like, it, I mean, it's a whole other movie of people are just like, like what are yeah. these weird clothes yeah. that you're wearing? But instead, like they're just scamming people playing poker or escaping execution or doing this or doing that and sort of just like through sort of no fault of their own just getting into trouble there is one point where somebody points out that like what are these people which is during the medieval times when they're about to be executed the guy that sees the phone booth touch down is oh, yeah. kind of riding by and accusing them of heresy and that I forget what exactly he says, but I think he like calls them a witch or something. It, it yeah. reminded me almost of Monty Python in a way there. Yeah, um, that whole time period was very much an homage to Monty Python, I felt. Yeah, and that's really also a um heavy metal time period, I feel. Mm-hmm. You know, like they had to go to medieval England and fight with armor and talk about the Iron Maiden and all that because they're just rock and roll references and they fit mm-hmm. in so well. <laughs> Bill, what? These are heavy. Yeah, heavy metal. <laughs> How's it going, royal ugly dudes? I am the Earl of Preston and I am the Duke of Ted. Put them in the Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden? Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. They go back in time and they find Socrates. He says the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. And they're like, hey, that's us. Like, we don't know anything. Like, I guess we must be the smartest guys in the world. I love how they communicate with him with the sand. Bill basically comes up and recites some lyrics, I believe. There's some rock lyrics. And and Socrates gets it immediately. You know, he's like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) He's like, we're all nothing. Uh, And he goes on to quote Days of Our Lives dialogue, like sand through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Even as a little kid, I remember picking up on that. And just how Socrates is immediately accepting of the situation and, and willing to go on this adventure. I'm Bill. This is Ted. We're from the future. Socrates. Hmm. Now what? I don't know. Philosophize with him. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Dust? Wind. Dude. The lyrics they quote is from a Kansas song, Dust in the Wind. But I, I have written down here... And this is, I mean, what we were just talking about a little bit earlier. I think it's either when they're leaving ancient Greece or maybe when they're getting to the next 
area, they say, Billy, you are dealing with the oddity of time travel with the greatest of ease. It's just like, yeah, like, I'm just going to roll with the punches. Like, I'm Billy the Kid. Like, I can, I can time travel. Don't worry about it. Billy, you are dealing with the oddity of time travel with the greatest of ease. And then they go to the next big set piece. They're not in Greece for very long. They're just there for a little bit. They just sort of walk up the stairs and get Socrates or Socrates and leave. But then they get to medieval times and they find the princesses that when they before they went on this journey they actually met up with themselves which we didn't talk about that there's two Mm -hmm. sets of bills and ted's and the one thing that ted says is say hi to the princesses you know basically there's gonna be princesses and he's like you'll you'll find out who they are and they find out and they 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 say it's a history report not a babe report but then ted says bill those are historical (laughs) babes us flirting with these girls is actually going to be helping us pass our test We also skipped over one of the most important lines from the film. Present Bill and Ted ask future Bill and Ted to prove that they are them. And they say, Okay, wait. If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! It it's is. terrific. It's absolutely yeah, The terrific. whole incident at the Circle K is really cool. And then what's good about it is that it comes up twice. It circles back in this at the Circle K. I don't know if that was intentional. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, watching this, I was like, oh, yeah, that's why they don't pick up anybody or leave with anybody from medieval times. And that pit stop was to introduce the princesses and understand what future Ted was mentioning and everything. Apparently, the original version of the script, because when they first introduced the princesses, one of them, they both ask if they want to go mm-hmm. to prom with them. And apparently the original version of the script, or some earlier version of the script at least, the movie was going to end with them actually at prom. Because, huh? I mean, the princesses, spoiler alert, get to be present with Rufus at the end, and they sort of join Bill and Ted to form the supergroup. But the movie was going to end with them at prom, and that just got cut out. So I guess them going and spending so much time here had a bigger payoff in the version of the movie that actually didn't It'll pay off made. in the sequel a little mm-hmm. more, too. So we can wait for that moment. All right. I'll have to, I'll have to trust you, because I also haven't seen Bogus <gasps> Journey or any of the oh TV shows. Oh, my God! Shows. <laughs> no, right? I don't know how I missed these. It just, it's something that just... It's, yeah, Bogus I don't know. Journey is I so good, know. and I cannot wait to talk to you guys about it. <laughs> I want to do it soon, because I'm so into right. Bill and Ted right now. But, like, you know, even though it's only a couple years later... Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is also nine movies from now. It came out two years after this, but he did so many things mm. in between that we're just not going to talk about it for a while. Like it's, I mean, we were in, what was it, 1986, yeah. Mike, for like mm-hmm. two months? There's just like these crazy prolific amounts that are stretches in Keanu's career where like, all right, I know the Bill and Ted story. I know I could watch Bogus Journey tonight if I wanted to, but I sort of want to see the progression, like why we're doing this. And he just did so many things between them. I mean... One of the things he did is the TV show, which we will cover on this. So it's not like we're going to have to go too long without Bill and Ted, but I'm very much looking forward to Bogus Journey. I can't believe it only came out two years later because as a kid, it felt like five or ten years. It felt like forever. But that's the (laughs) thing about this coming back to it is you could go so much further, you know, like you could do five or six movies. You could do a TV series. The template is here and it works so well. And it's like, yeah, I I really want to see new Bill and Ted and really hope they get that third movie off the ground. 
Well, as we're recording this, I mean, things, it seems like things could change between the time that we're recording this and the time that this is released. Because it feels like all these news stories are like, it's definitely happening, or it's probably happening, or it just has like this. It, it, it almost seems like any day, like they could be like, all right, it's happening. We're going to shoot it in like next year. It's going to come mm-hmm. out. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like it it's on the verge. It could be on the verge. It might never happen. But also, as we sort of approach Comic-Con, this could be... It's the type of thing that could mm. be announced at Comic-Con to, like, sort of great fan Yeah, fan, you know what that I mean? makes sense. As you were saying that, I was like, eh, I don't know about that. Because I have been following the saga of the third Bill and Ted movie for, like, at least the last seven years or so. So it's been very slow going of, like... Yeah, we want to do it, but, you know, there's all of these things in the way. And then, yeah, we have a script. I think like a year ago, Alex Winters was on the Nerdist podcast talking about the fact that it may or may not happen. So I certainly hope it happens. There's a rumor that the original third Bill and Ted script was actually converted into the movie Biodome, which is... Denied by everyone involved, but I like to think of it that that actually happened. There's definitely like people want it. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. that's what's amazing is like I don't know if it's just this the wave of nostalgia like it is, you know, for franchises. It's just like twenty years later, people like just want to relive their childhood or whatever it is. But I was sort of surprised how much the community is out there and how much they want it and let's Recently, Keanu has sort of clawed his way back from semi-straight-to-DVD obscurity, and I think his star power rising again might just be the thing to put this into production. Fingers are crossed. The question, I guess, the bigger question for Keanu is, like, what will be announced first, Bill and Ted 3 or Matrix (laughs) 4? Because they both sort of seem like these endless rumors. I would say this is probably Mm -hmm. more likely, at least given the Wachowskis commitment to sense8 and stuff like that but i mean i would like to see both as long as they're able to obviously i mean this makes sense but like as long as they're able to sort of stick with the integrity like if if there's a reason for the movie to happen they have a story that they should be told as opposed to something like jurassic world which is just a movie to make a movie and to make a billion i mean if it's gonna happen now is the best possible time because you have all of these kind of like stars aligning of the nostalgia craze and the let's make a zillion movies in one franchise phase. And, you know, like you were saying, Keanu kind of clawing his way back. I think this is prime time for Bill and Ted 3. So when they're in medieval times and they're sort of like pretending that they're (laughs) Jedi, like they have literal medieval swords in their hands and they're still pretending that they're (laughs) in Star Like It's just... It's like they can never be, like, okay with where they are. It's always like they want to be somewhere else, which is just kind of funny. But then after they do that, Ted falls and rolls down the stairs, and it appears that he gets stabbed and killed. But good news, he pops out of nowhere and says, I fell out of my suit when I hit the floor. Just, like, completely doofish. Just, like, you know, rolls down the stairs and then manages to escape just because I'm assuming his suit Mm -hmm. wasn't on properly. I love how they're good sword fighters. They're just like, dude, we totally know how to sword fight. And they're actually <laughs> connecting and doing moves and things. I thought that was pretty funny. It's just great to see these metal heads in this heavy metal gear and stuff and in this setting. Yeah, and they even make a joke about it when they're walking down the corridor. One of them is like, yo, these suits are really heavy. And then they pause and say, heavy metal. And then they do the um, <laughs> the air guitar. 
air guitar. I remember doing that in the hallways in middle school. This is a sort of a time period, though, where Bill and Ted get into a little bit of trouble, and they, things progress so direly that they're about to get mm-hmm. executed. And this is the point in the movie where, like, obviously they're not going to die, and obviously Billy the Kid and Socrates are going to save them. But I, I want to give the movie credit for being smart here. I didn't expect them to be the executioners. I thought they were going to ride in on horses or something and rescue them. But no, they're just, they're the executioners, and they're going to whisk Bill and Ted away and save the day. And it's almost as if Socrates and Billy the Kid were like, what's taking Bill and Ted so long? Well, let's go check it out. And they're like, oh, man, they got captured. We got to do something. And they have like this whole plan where they knock out the real executioners and steal their cloaks and everything. We never get to see any of that. But it's just so funny how they are right there in the right moment to save their lives. And they ride off, and as they're trying to escape this time period, this is when they run into the technical Mm -hmm. difficulties, and the phone number that they're dialing doesn't work. And so they find the number that does work, and they go to the future. But am I right or am I wrong in assuming that this is sort of a slightly earlier future than the future we saw with Rufus? Because this seems like the future where they go and introduce, be excellent to each other, and party on to. This sort of seems like that they were just sort of hanging out in the future, and then these great saviors came and espoused their wisdom and then left from there or is it the no same time i period? think it's the same time period because they exit the phone booth and bill remarks on the excellent music that's playing then they realize that it's their own music yeah the guy in charge the dignitary in charge says it's you so at the very least you know they they have the music and they're appreciating the music you might be right, though. Because I feel like in, in terms of like time travel, the function of time travel, I don't, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Because in some way that they've, they've always been there and they've always had that music, I don't know. It is weird, though, because it kind of plays like they almost made a mistake. Like it's the one thing they're diverging from the, the thing that everybody knows to happen. Like it, they seem surprised to see Bill and Ted show up. It's almost as if, whoa, you... You know, you never dialed us before. We've known of your adventure for this whole time, and this is the only time you've shown up sort of thing. But yeah, I do think that is sort of the future prime, the nexus of where everything is going to change from, where Rufus came from and stuff. So I do think it's the first time they met Bill and Ted in person, but I do think they know, you know, these are the guys who made the music that we're trying to save. And they do you say that they would bring them with them <laughs> along on this journey, on this excellent adventure, but they're writing a history report, not a future report. So these these excellent dudes in the future have to stay where they are, unfortunately for them. And there's all these people that come into that room and like surround them in a circle and do like the slow air guitar thing, which is kind of bizarre. And I wrote down here in my notes that they all look like extras at like a Kanye West fashion show. <laughs> Well, now they do, now, because yeah. Kanye saw this movie and was like, I'm going to rip that off. I just love the godlike stature in which everybody regards Bill and Ted. And, you know, it's just like yeah. these two dudes, you know, it's like these two Spicolis, these two skater surfer kids. And they're the greatest people in the world, just like so opposite of what is generally regarded as the hero and the savior. I don't want to keep comparing this movie to The Matrix because I don't think they have really anything in common other than sort of a time jump of sorts and Keanu Reeves. But what what I noticed about this movie is that they keep asking, where are we? Instead of asking, like, mm-hmm. when are we? 
because I can sort of see, you know, they go back in time to the Wild West, and you sort of, even a couple doofuses like them are going to know, okay, I, I'm familiar with this. Or like, going back to medieval times, like I see a castle, I see princesses, I'm sort of familiar with this. He, they go to this future that doesn't look like anything really anywhere, right? And just like these three people sitting on pedestals, and they're asking, where are we instead of when are we? And it turns out that they're still in San Dimas, right? That it's just 700 years in the future? Yeah, or no? I think so. I think Rufus says in the beginning, this is San Dimas in the future. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I think that's right. where they are then. But you bring up an interesting point because this isn't just a time machine. It goes through time and space because they go to Mongolia. They go to France. You know, they go to Austria, Germany, the White House. Right. So they can travel through space as well as time. But I like that to, to bring it back to the point that I was originally making that I actually didn't make at all was that when they free Keanu from the Matrix and then they sort of reinsert them into like the training program for Morpheus to explain what exactly is going on, he says you might want to ask where you are, but the better question is when. It's like you think it's 1999, but it's actually 2199 or whatever. And like that's the same thing here. Like You might think that you're just somewhere else in the world, but no, you're actually 700 years in the future and you have no idea how important you are to this world. Like, he's almost the... He's almost there. He is the one <laughs> for this world. This is almost like a, a Matrix prequel. Yeah, him sure. and Him and Bill. Sure. Ted Theodore Logan and Bill as Preston Esquire. But yeah, you know, ultimately they are the Neo and the Trinity of this saga. And I guess that would make Rufus Morpheus? Maybe. And they both have a similar sounding name and the U.S. I mean, it's... it's I mean, the pieces are all there. Open your eyes, sheeple. This is definitely a Matrix prequel. They go, and like this is sort of when they have the quick hits, like what I think what Mike said earlier about the montage. They go pick up Sigmund Frude, as well, they call first him. first they go uh, back. Well, they don't go back, but we cut, we back, cut back to you know, present-day San Dimas at the ice cream shop slash Chuck E. Cheese place with Napoleon and Deacon. To eat mm-hmm. the Ziggy Pig. And they get the Ziggy Piggy Award for eating this gigantic ice creator cream Creator cameo. The two creators of Bill and Ted are actually the waiters who serve them the ice oh. cream. Interesting little bit of trivia. It's also great how they uh, put that pig pin right on Napoleon's yeah. lapel next to all of his military pins and stuff. And yeah, and he proceeds to wear it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's really happy about it. And he seems like as proud of that as yeah. he is of any of his other medals. So, I mean, good good for you, Napoleon. Yeah, and this is sort of when Ted's little brother is starting to get the idea that Napoleon's a dick. Yeah, so that, this is actually what I was going to mention before, that this movie is rated PG. There's really nothing explicit or, you know, there's no real language other than his little brother saying that Napoleon's a dick. Like, if Bill and Ted 3 existed today, what would it be rated? Because this seems basically like a kid's movie. Would they make it a, like another PG movie, or is this... What do you What do you guys feel? Um, that's a good question. The other time that there is quote-unquote profane language is at the bowling alley. When Napoleon bowls and misses, he says, shit, 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 shit. But he says it in French, so... Merd, merd, yeah, merd, merd, but it merd. is subtitled, which is interesting because that is one of the few times that any of the non-English speaking characters are subtitled outside <laughs> of their own time. So, like, we see Napoleon subtitled when he's in Austria, but for the rest of the movie, I think with the exception of that one scene where he says shit, he actually doesn't get subtitled. Genghis Khan doesn't get subtitled. 
Joan of Arc doesn't really say anything. She has no lines. Yeah. Typical. I guess the rule of thumb is that unless it's a joke, don't subtitle it. Yeah. Like if it's just if it's just them talking, who yeah, really cares? That's interesting. As far as the rating goes, this is such a wholesome movie and it's so sweet <laughs> and genuine and even though like you pointed out, all of these characters meet very dark and violent ends in real life. In the movie, there is, like, no darkness. I mean, there's, like, a few creepy, weird, dark jokes about, like, the Oedipal complex. But, yeah, Yeah. it it just is such a sweet movie. I can't imagine. But then, on the other hand, Bogus Journey is almost the opposite. So, we'll see. I remember as a kid, I didn't quite understand what was going on with with Missy, that character. Mm not nearly as much as I understand it now, you know, <laughs> as an older person, you know, that's about as risque as it gets. And that's mm-hmm. really coded for adults, you know, like that kind of, you know, it's almost like something in there for the parent that's bringing me there when I was a kid. It's not yeah. for me. And all in all, this, this movie is kind of in one weird way, like a history lesson, you know, like you're, you're going to come out sure. of this as a kid knowing about historical figures you never heard of perhaps. And it's going to make you want to learn and stuff. And, and yes, um, Bogus Journey, is that, that's got to be PG-13. When we get to it, it's just in such a different sort of tone and they go in a completely different direction that I almost feel like nowadays it would have to be at least PG-13 for Bill and Ted 3 just to sort of invoke that rock and roll style and attitude again to mm-hmm. portray it on screen might even you know require PG-13 just because of image and, and, and style and stuff like that. You know, it's just, it's like a rougher genre. One thing that you said reminded me that I, I read this thing that Alex Winter gets two different kinds of letters from teachers. He gets letters from history teachers that say that their students, because of this movie, I mean, I don't know anymore, but maybe, you know, in the 80s and 90s, kids were like suddenly really interested in history because of this movie. But he says he also gets letters from people, from teachers saying, now because of you, my kids, my students talk like you, and it's like kind of the worst. <laughs> and so like this movie's sort of a blessing and a curse, I guess, to That's teachers. Interesting. So in this part of the movie, this is where we have that montage that Mike was talking about, that they get Sigmund Freud, that they call Sigmund Freud, who thinks what's going on is just a dream, but Billy the Kid lassos him and brings him along. Then they pick up Beethoven. They sort of just kidnap him kind mm-hmm. of mid-concert, right? Then they get Joan of Arc right as she's praying and sort of, I guess, her prayers are answered. That Right before she's about to be killed, she's sort of, I guess, praying for, like, rescue, and they, they rescue her. They're sort of her knights in shining armor. Yeah, kind of. I don't, uh, as far as, like, Joan of Arc's timeline, at the end of the film, we learn that she goes on to lead people in battle. And so I think that's pre-Joan of Arc being tried as a witch and you know one could make an argument that maybe this is that religious experience that she had and (laughs) that's a fun thought i like joan of arc here i wish we had more female historical characters you know she's the only one we're really gonna get and one girl's gonna do a report about marie antoinette but it's not very exciting and she didn't didn't seem like she really put the effort in as much as bill and ted did but yeah it would have been great to see a couple more girls in that phone booth i mean as much as i would sort of like to see more gender equality in terms of who they rescue i think that it's sort of refreshing sort of in a way that most of these guys that they rescue are sort of like they're they're kind of dumb too i mean like billy the kids portrayed well but i mean 
of the people that they capture or they bring back to the modern day, like Joan of Arc is kind of one of the more positive. I mean, the fact that she doesn't say anything necessarily isn't great, but in terms of just how she adapts to things, I mean, I think it's kind of a positive portrayal. So sure, I'd like to have more women, but at least the woman that they bring back is kind of represented fairly well, at least. Yeah. Sort of. Later at the mall, you're going to have Billy the Kid and Socrates and Sigmund Freud like trying to pick up girls. Genghis Kong in a sporting goods store beating up a mannequin and stuff. Joan of Arc will be jazzercising. You know, she's leading like an exercise class. And I guess she gets out of it the least scathed. The other guys do seem to be portrayed to be um, a bit more stupid than her. I mean, they lure Genghis Khan <laughs> into the phone booth with a Twinkie. Like, that's yeah. the whole scene. Like, it's just, hey, uh, do you want a Twinkie, Genghis Khan? And, like, he just comes in the phone booth. And, like, that's it. You know, this great warlord is just tempted by processed sugar, which I think they even, like, make reference to in the movie. Yeah. 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 That Genghis Khan loves Twinkies because it, it gets them all jazzed to go into battle. Oh, and Abraham Lincoln answers the door <laughs> to the Oval Office, like, with promises of a candy gram right yeah. i mean like it's they just straight up they even have a term they call uh let's bag them you know when they decide on who they're gonna get and they literally just straight up kidnap beethoven lincoln sigmund freud these guys are like straight up you're coming with us against your will well it kind of goes back to what i was saying about napoleon before being just as much a doofus as bill and ted like all of these characters kind of are too and that's why it works i mean not necessarily Beethoven, because they literally pick up the bench that he's sitting on and carry him out of the frame. But the other ones just like are so easily lured into their scheme. And so it's sort of at this point, right, that they've kind of assembled their crew. Like they're kind of, I guess, ready to go back to the present to give their presentation, but they have kind of technical difficulties and they get sent back to 1 million BC mm -hmm. in San Dimas. I was sort of hoping, and maybe it's kind of cliche, maybe that's why they didn't do it, but I was hoping that they were going to, not one million years ago, obviously, but, like, there's there's an opportunity for them to, like, interact with dinosaurs, mm. right? But they don't. I'm not sure why they sort of avoid that, other than it might just be cliche and to budget. expect that. I mean, it, mm -hmm. that's and probably... Because they do have, like, Neanderthals as mm -hmm. they're leaving. They're, like you know, coming up the path, one of them is chewing gum, which is part of like the scene where they all chew gum and then have to make a big disgusting wad of their gum to fix the antenna on top. Mm -hmm. I thought that was totally gross as a kid, the gum <laughs> stuff. It's still yeah, totally <laughs> gross. <laughs> the Neanderthal guys, I, I feel now they missed the obvious joke of them going up to the phone booth and touching it like 2001. But this time around, I was like, oh, those two Neanderthal guys are kind of like the proto-Bill and Ted. They witnessed all of this right there at the dawn of time, and it's like they're almost visiting their ancestors. What I found was interesting about this scene is that this whole time they've had all of these chocolate pudding cups in the backpack. <laughs> and just now we're learning that there's chocolate pudding. First of all, that seems like it would make the backpack very heavy. Second of all... They're like aluminum cans. Did chocolate pudding used to come in aluminum cans? I have, have no like a idea. snack pack or something like that. Yeah. Might have. That brings up an interesting point too, is because if you never really see them eating or snacking, and that's because even though they have a time machine, they have to get back in time for their report. That's kind of an interesting 
law of time travel I've never really mm-hmm. ran into that often is that a clock that's always running back where you came from in San Dimas. So like even though you have a time machine, can't miss that date at that specific time. Not really clear on how that works, but I like it as like a rule and something they stick to and this ticking clock looming over them. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? Gentlemen, you can do anything you want as long as you remember this. No matter what happens, you must get to that report. Got it? All right, amigos, that book will give you the number of any place you want to go. Now, most important, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, that clock, the clock in San Dimas, is always running. Got it? Yeah. All right. Time for me to go. What do you mean, Rufus? Yeah. Aren't you coming with us? Gentlemen, you're on your own. Right, like, it, it somehow makes sense and also <laughs> yeah. doesn't make any sense. Like, if you think about it, it's almost like if you think about it, it makes sense. And the more you think about it, the less sense it makes. And if you keep thinking about it, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. that, that makes enough sense for the world that they're in. Not only does it create these rules that the movie and the characters have to stick to, but it also opens up the joke that when the Bills and Ted's meet each other, Ted tells other Ted to wind his watch and just doesn't. Like, I like that in this sort of loop that these characters are always in, that if you think about it, like, you know, the people coming from the future tell the past, and then the people from the past become the future ones who tell, you know what I mean? Like, I like that in this never-ending cycle, Ted is always telling Ted <laughs> to wind his watch, and just never, ever, ever remembers. Ted, don't forget to wind your watch! And it almost gets them into trouble, like, it almost makes them miss their presentation. Well, yeah, I mean, it's another way for the stakes to get a little bit higher, With time travel, it's this luxury that you have all of this time in the world, but in this universe where the the clock keeps ticking and there is a set point in time that they need to be back by, it adds a little extra suspense to it. I also thought it was pretty cool that they just throw that away. It's less important than saying hi to the princesses or dealing with the fact that we're meeting ourselves. Yet to the audience, it's like a critical setup. But because it's thrown away so leisurely, I forgot about the winding the watch thing again this time. You know, I almost forget about it every time. That's always a nice surprise when they arrive back at the Circle K to meet themselves. Right before the time travel montage... They say, like, we don't really need anyone else, but let's keep going. And one of them asks why, and they say, extra credit, dude. So they very easily could have just gotten Napoleon, Billy the Kid, and whoever the third person was and gone back. But instead, they decided to keep going for extra credit, which is really endearing. Because at no point have they tried to get out of doing this project, which Mm -hmm. would be kind of the default for a slacker type character is to figure out like how can I meet this goal with the most minimal amount of work and here they are putting it in an absolute maximum and then still wanting to go the extra mile which is really sweet. Well I think that's why they're so likable because they're not willfully neglectful of school they're just kind of dumb like they're just kind of like either they can't focus in school or they just don't know the stuff or just like it's not interesting like it's not like they're like oh we can't wait to go out of school so we can just do nothing just play with the band all day it's just like he doesn't want to go to alaska he wants to do all this report he just like you know for lots of reasons can't it's really great though to see them want to learn more that's a nice little transition that they have and it just happens very naturally too which i think the movie earns all these little moments because it really stays true to itself none of it really feels forced 
even though time travel is illogical, there's a strange logic to the movie that they're sticking to. And, and I think that's what helps make it so successful. And there's never a moment where I really, I can't follow what's happening and why things are going on. Yeah, this movie actually requires very little reasonable suspension of disbelief, really. Like, it just feels so natural and is so fun and sweet that, like, at no point do I find myself thinking, actually, that's not how that would happen. (laughs) And so I like that in a sort of convoluted but also simple method of time travel, they go back to San Dimas and they, they meet their earlier selves, the ones about to to embark on this excellent adventure. And they're happy that the conversation made more sense this time. But what I like, what might be my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite joke in the movie, that's one of my favorite jokes in the movie, is that we're back in San Mm -hmm. Dimas, but it's yesterday. And like, no, it is tomorrow. Use the dial one number higher. So it's just like the phone number to bring you to where you want to go. It's just like, you know, if you want to go to tomorrow, just add one. Like that's, I mean, that's that's obvious, right? Just add one to the phone number. Yeah, and Rufus even like, knocks on bill's head like a no doy like this is so obvious why (laughs) would you not even think of that but if you have no previous experience with time travel in this universe why would that occur to you anyway gentlemen is everything all right yeah except how come the number we dialed for san dimas brought us here instead of to tomorrow rufus because in san dimas it is tomorrow william you have to dial one number higher oh yeah Thanks, Rufus. Well, that's the thing that is so funny about it is this is exposition he's just being introduced to. Like, Rufus never told him to get to tomorrow, dial an extra number. It's just like, it's so obvious to Rufus that he doesn't understand why he needs to explain it in the first place. I don't know. There's just something really comical about that at this point in the movie where we're about to launch into the third act. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's really crucial exposition piece of time travel rules that we're going to establish. Never established them. Want to play it off like a joke. And I think it worked really well. And also in this time loop Rufus never actually introduces himself. He never tells them his name. Mm -hmm. The only time that Rufus is introduced is in the first version of this scene where future Bill, or no, I think future, future one of them says to present Bill and Ted, this is Rufus, you should listen to him. And that's the only introduction that he gets. Rufus! Listen to this dude, Rufus. He knows what he's talking about. Right. Which is weird if you think about it. Like, right. how did he know that? Because at some point, and this is why time travel is kind of the best and also really infinitely frustrating. Because, like, at some point, they had to introduce Rufus to him, but, like, they never did because he never says his name. Right. It's just something that I guess he's always known. Right. Like, how did they learn the name Rufus if he never said I'm Rufus? Well, the very first time he went back to help Bill and Ted, they never met themselves. There had to be an original time stream. That's my explanation to myself, is that the very <laughs> the very first time, they didn't meet themselves, and Rufus introduced who he was and explained everything. The second time, Bill and Ted forgot to dial an extra number, and, and then they infinitely meet themselves. And so they dial the right number and they go to the right time and they have they, they only have two hours before the presentation and they need to find Napoleon again, right? And this is sort of, this is weird to me. It's like in the middle of the school day and they're just sort of like rolling around looking for Napoleon, which I guess in, in the span of the movie doesn't really matter. But it's also like if Napoleon was on that date the night before, he's just sort of been loose in San Dimas <laughs> yeah. overnight. Things begin to sort of not add up, but also it doesn't really matter. 
I think this is the day of the high school finals. So I would imagine the Waterloops Park is packed with kids in middle school and grade school, and they're already out for the summer vacation. Bill and Ted go back to Bill's house, and they want to borrow the car and everything, but Missy says you got to clean the house, so all the historical figures are cleaning the house. Lincoln gets his beard caught in the vacuum cleaner, all kinds of of shenanigans. Uh, no, actually, that to... was uh, that was Freud. He tries to put oh. the vacuum cleaner in his mouth as like okay. a nod to an oral fixation, which happens several <laughs> times. In... Yeah, he's eating a hot dog yes, on a stick, I think, at one yeah. point, right? But, yeah, and then Bill drops him off at the mall so they could go look for Napoleon and they can sort of experience 1980s life. So I just assumed that their presentation was sort of on a finals day near graduation. Well, they also, I think at one point, like the way that I sort of justified it to myself was, and not that this matters in any way, but I think the actual presentation that they were supposed to give was what would historical figures think of San Dimas today? And so not only did they go to the mall to find Napoleon, but I saw it as like, go experience our culture and like, let us know what you think. And they don't really have that conversation on camera, I don't think, but it's sort of, that's that's the impression that I got. I think actually Bill and Ted tell them to stay where they are. Like they get them a tray (laughs) of Slurpees and just say, stay here. But of course they don't stay there. They, you know, go off and each one of them kind of gets into their own trouble. This is the San Dimas Mall. And this is where people of today's world hang out. All right, everybody, watch your step getting off. Beethoven, make sure you don't get sucked under. Everybody, get together. Remember who your buddy is. Socrates, watch out for your robe, dude. Okay, look around, see what you think. We'll be back as soon as we find Napoleon, okay? Come on, dude, we don't got much time. Yes, but what what are we? This is like one of the best parts of the movie, too, when all the historical figures are just loose at the mall. This is when you have Beethoven going through the music store and sort of taking over. And like I mentioned, Genghis Khan at the sporting goods store. And just like everybody gets some pretty good moments here until mall security starts chasing everybody down and grabbing them. I mean, Billy the Kid is shooting his gun off like up in the air. I mean, you know, Genghis (laughs) Khan on a skateboard with a baseball bat is one thing. But Billy the Kid, put that gun away. I think he only actually fires the gun once the wheels have really fallen off. Like once they're (laughs) trying to escape from mall security in his defense. And then they get held off to the police department where I forgot that Ted's dad is a police officer. I totally forgot. Coincidentally, Ted's dad is the police officer. And not only is he like about to kick Keanu Reeves out to Alaska, but he's also the reason why that's going to happen. Yeah, because he's locked up all of his dudes, you know? He's put his dudes behind bar, and he needs to break them out so that they could put on their show. And But there's no reasoning with Ted's dad, so I love this joke, too. You know, the whole movie, his dad's been looking for his keys, and it's at this moment where we realize that Bill and Ted are going to travel back after the movie and steal his dad's keys. And that's sort of why he's been looking for them the whole time. They're going to steal the keys and plant them outside the police station so that they could rescue everybody. Our historical figures are all locked up. My dad won't let them out. Can we get your dad's keys? We could steal them, but he lost them two days ago. If only we could go back in time to when he had them and steal them then. Well, why can't we? Because we don't got time. We could do it after the report. Ted, good thinking, dude. After the report, we'll time travel back to two days ago, steal your dad's keys, and leave them here. Where? I don't know. 
How about behind that sign? That way, when we get here now, they'll be waiting for us. See? Whoa, yeah! So, after the report, we can't forget to do this, otherwise it won't happen. But it did happen. Hey, it was me who stole my dad's keys. Exactly, Ted. Come on. This is my favorite. I mean, I've talk I talked about it earlier, but this is my favorite part of the movie because they're trying to figure out how to get by the dad and they decide in the future they're going to go back in time and steal the keys and put them behind the sign, get this tape player and stash it in the corner and have it set to a certain time. It's such a perfect little caper montage and it's all, there's no special effects just because it's all, like it's, it's almost like intelligent special effects, which is amazing. Yeah, it's like hard sci-fi. It relies on ideas instead of visuals, really. The concept of time travel and how they understand it and are able to master it at this point, it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, they, they are time lords at this stage. That is just like such a great idea to think of, like, oh, this is how it works, and we're going to use that to our advantage. But this is kind of another place where they're really breaking the rules of time travel as far as, like, other time travel fiction is concerned of, like, using it to their advantage in a specific way. I feel like that's something that is always, like, against the rules. Or at least I might just be thinking about Harry Potter, which has nothing to do with time travel. <laughs> yeah. Also, we did get a little bit ahead of ourselves and skipped over the hilarious Napoleon water slide montage. Oh, which sure. to me is my favorite part of the movie. All I wrote down was hilarious Napoleon water slide montage. It's so good. <laughs> And I mean, it makes sense that he goes to a park called Waterloo or Waterloops or whatever. I mean, this is, it's where he was always, it seems like, destined to end up and just, it's a much better finale or sort of chapter in his life than the actual mm -hmm. Waterloo is going to be. It makes you wonder if it kind of influenced his decision once he was dropped back off in France. And he was like, you know what? Like, he looked on his map and he's like, we've got a Waterloops? Like, let's go there. Let's invade it. And he gets there and he's like, there's no slides. Oh, man. But yeah, I also love it just because we get more Napoleon, and I just love seeing him being made kind of a fool of here in this movie. But by the <laughs> end of the sequence, which is amazing, is like I'm kind of with Napoleon because he's loving the water slides by the end. You know, he's almost like a master. He's he's going forward, backward, all types of ways. Like he, they have to literally drag him out of there, kicking and screaming. Yeah, it, I mean, his there's so much character growth that happens <laughs> from the time that he tries to go down the first water slide where he's very skeptical and the person working at the water park actually shoves him down the water slide. And even just on that first water slide, he's terrified. He's like twirling around, is all freaked out. And then by the time he gets to the bottom, he's just having the time of his life. And then we see him go on water slide after water slide. At first, he's like pushing children out of the way so that he can get to the front of the line. And towards the end of it, he's actually like having fun with the kids and not necessarily saying like, get out of my way. He's like participating with them. That's what's kind of great about all of these historical figures in modern society is that like even like they just find such joy in the mm -hmm. simplest pleasures. Like he finds joy in the water slides. Joan of Arc just falls in love with jazzercise. Beethoven, or as they call him, Heath <laughs> Oven, loves, you know, electric keyboards and, like, buttons that automatically play songs. Genghis Khan loves sporting goods. It's, it's almost stuff that, like, just props lying around your house. Like, it's all stuff well within, like, a, a movie budget. They're just like, oh, like, these are all things that would be exactly mm -hmm. what these people would want to see. 
it's almost like showing how we're still connected to them in a weird way to that past in a strange sense like when you're gearing up to play sports and stuff you could pretend to be like a mongol gearing up to go to battle and if you're playing your keyboard in the 20th century you could pretend and imagine yourself to be beethoven in his time one day and so it's just they draw the perfect parallels between the two different time zones the ones that they you know are from and what they would do if they're dropped in modern day they find their niche so well that's just really good writing too i think that the writers were able to be like oh clearly he would you know it's just so natural for him to go for genghis khan to go to the sporting goods store and like trade in his axe for a baseball bat you know aluminum and like bite it and it's just it all feels right and even billy the kid and so crates like when they're hitting on those girls first of all Socrates is wearing a button that says I heart San Dimas, which is adorable. <laughs> Billy introduces himself and says, hi, I'm Billy. This is Socrates. We're from history. And it seems like it's actually like going well until Freud walks up behind them. And of course, Freud being this like highly sexualized historical figure is the one who makes the girls be like, oh my God, ew. And then like run away. <laughs> Because he's doofus to, like, the 10th power. They even said, like, he's yeah. just such a geek. Like, he just doesn't know. Freud had to, uh, oh, just, it's perfect. Like, his, his depiction yeah. is perfect. Like, both in terms of how he's written and, and even how, how he's, he's cast. He looks exactly terrific. like Sigmund Freud. Yeah, I love when Lincoln gets his picture taken at the old Tommy place. And the guy's like, all right, give me the beard and the hat back. And he's like, no, no, I'm, like, actually Lincoln. And I'm sitting there going, like, this guy is looking so much like Lincoln, you know? Like, I would have believed him. And, yeah, same with Freud, same with everybody. I just feel like the lookalike stature of them are spot on. It's almost like wax museum pieces come to life. To move ahead a little bit, like, the greatest irony of all is that they're able to bring all these classic historical figures to modern-day San Dimas and then ultimately return them home after a tremendously successful presentation but it turns out sort of that like it almost seems like all of this was for naught like they wind up mm -hmm. back in their garage right you know we see all these great montages of like everybody experiencing modern day culture and the whole movie is them going back in time finding all these people and bringing them with them and, like it seems like the whole point of the movie was just oh they're just able to continue living their lives and then that's when we realize no like they're they're destined for greater bigger and greater things but like there's almost like the gut punch moment where it just says oh like none of this means anything well yeah and ted even laments that they've done all these amazing things they got an a plus on their history report but nothing's changed but i think the closing line of the film is this has been a most excellent adventure and i think that's the grain of truth here is that it's about the adventure. It's about the journey, exactly. not the destination. Yeah. I, I almost felt part of it, too, is Ted isn't going to be shipped away to military academy now, and they'll be able to be together so that they can practice. And by cramming all night and having the confidence and growth, and now that they've passed history, maybe now they'll actually take some lessons, you know, and not have to think that they need to be from Eddie Van Halen, that they've grown in the sense that they have the confidence to move on and form this band and actually practice and become what they're always destined to become. Which are the most important people in the history Ever. of the world, I yes. guess. <laughs> or at least Ever. in the way, way future. I almost feel like there were a couple hundred years of dark times and then someone found their CD and then reestablished electricity and then played it across the entire planet and brought them all together. Who knows? Well, just to not undersell how important they are, we find out that their music is going to end war and poverty. 
it will align the planets and let them talk to everyone, both like extraterrestrial beings and house pets. And also, most importantly, it's great to dance to. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's sort of like the perfect music. How can we ever thank you, Rufus? Well, you can start by signing this for my kids. Why? They're big fans of yours. What? Everyone is. Wild Stallion's music has become the foundation of our whole society. No way. Yes way. In fact, I believe you were there. That futuristic place with the domes. And the totally excellent music. They totally worshipped us there, Rufus. I know. That's why I was sent to make sure you passed your history report. If you guys were separated, it would have been disastrous for life as we know it. You see, eventually, your music will help put an end to war and poverty. It will align the planets and bring them into universal harmony, allowing meaningful contact with all forms of life, from extraterrestrial beings to common household pets. And it's excellent for dancing. I really hope we get into more of that, talking to house pets. That's crazy and technology right there. I want to see that <laughs> in a future Bill and Ted movie. Bill and Ted and, you know, maybe that dog Rufus that we were supposed to have. Yes. I mean, rest in peace, George Carlin, but nothing wrong with a CGI dog, Men in Black style, that talks like George Carlin. Fingers crossed. I am Fingers here crossed. for it. Well, you are officially our Bill and Ted experts, so you will be with us whenever 3 comes out. A few little bits of trivia that I found. They apparently auditioned hundreds of actors to play them, and they narrowed it down to about 24. And then they just found the people with the best chemistry, and that was Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. But apparently Keanu originally auditioned mm -hmm. for Bill and Alex Winter oh. for Ted or something, and that's somehow they, they flip-flopped those. Originally Bill and Ted were nerds, but after they cast Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves, they're like, we can't cast these guys as nerds. Like, these guys... Like, that's what we've seen in, in, in past movies, mm -hmm. Mike, where, like... Keanu Reeves is sort of like set like girls say no to him or you know he's sort of this like weirdo outsider it's like no like it's Keanu Reeves even back then I mean he's he's just sort of cool yeah I mean, he's yeah, very yeah. handsome if nothing else like I did notice that when I was watching <laughs> yeah and they don't play up that girls don't like him if anything he was able to woo a princess in this movie so they almost played up to his good looks and charm yeah Bill even acknowledges uh, you're the ladies man you figure this out Apparently, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves supposedly were discovered when they were messing around in a line outside of McDonald's in front of the writers, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's something that I read online. We talked about earlier about how all these people that they kidnap were ultimately killed in some really sort of brutal fashion. Apparently, some version of the script was going to have Bill and Ted accidentally cause all of history's greatest tragedies, like the sinking of the Titanic and the crash of the Hindenburg Oof. and the Black Plague and stuff. But that would have been like a really kind of dark, depressing movie, and I'm glad yeah, that they didn't do that. Too. Yeah, I hope that's not part three either, because in light of especially the past decade, I don't want to see any of these yeah. massive historical events recreated, you know, for comedic effect. And I think the last thing that I have is that the phone booth time machine in the film was given away as a contest prize in Nintendo wow. Power, the magazine. And the magazine was promoting a then-new Bill & Ted game for the NES. So how cool would that be to have the Bill & Ted phone booth yeah. like in your basement or something, or in your garage? That would be, be fantastic. There was um, also a Bill & Ted cereal. 
Like, that's how heavily Ooh. this stuff was franchised, that there was two movies, not just the cartoon, but there was also a live-action Bill and Ted series not starring anyone from the original cast. A bunch of video games, but Nintendo were the ones who licensed it both for the video game and a breakfast cereal. Oh, comic books, too. And action yes. figures, as we right. learned from Mike at the yeah, top of the, the show. So I think that's all the notes that I have about Bill and Ted. Uh, Mike, did you have anything um, else that you wanted to? The only other thing I have, we didn't really, you know, it is Keanu Club, but we didn't really mention Alex Winter too much. But he'll come back with a documentary about the deep web later on that Keanu, I think he does some voice work on that documentary. Yeah. Oh, so right, right, right. As far as I know, they, um, they remained good friends. They're close and they've worked together. He directed the movie Freaked, which Keanu will also come back for in a couple films in sort of a uncredited cameo role. Huh. And this is the second of the Lost Boys that Keanu has worked with. Previously, Kiefer Sutherland in Brotherhood of Justice. Kara, any other things in your notes that you uh, want to talk about? One thing that I would just point out is that co-writer Christopher Matheson is the son of mm. Richard Matheson, who is yeah. an American author, screenwriter. Uh, he wrote the novel I Am Legend, which you may or may not have heard of, and also wrote like 16 episodes of The Twilight Zone, which is interesting, including huh. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is one of my personal favorites. So he comes from like sci-fi royalty really oh i don't know if i said this or not but at the 50th anniversary of the incorporation of san dimas california the city yep. of san dimas now has the slogan a most excellent city so it's a it's an actual city in california it's not just a movie city like hill valley <laughs> no it's an actual city oh okay i wasn't aware of that well thank you very much for joining us we really appreciate well, having thank you here. so much this was so much fun I love Bill and Ted. You'll be back for two of our next, I think, nine podcasts. And then you'll definitely be back for Bogus Journey. But you also have a podcast that has nothing to do with movies, if you want to plug that here. I think you're our first guest with their own podcast, so that's kind of exciting. You're a first in the Cage Club Podcast Network awesome. family for that. Uh, yes, it is a very different podcast. It's called In Sickness and in Health, and I talk to people, I interview them about like their relationships with their bodies, and then we get into discussions about the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. So, you know, the fun stuff. I think you have probably a bigger following Maybe. than we do. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, but you're doing a podcast that actually means something that actually helps people as opposed to us who just, we're just sitting around watching Keanu Reeves movies Listen. and talking about them. So. I very much applaud your efforts. I think that what the Cage Club Podcast Network is doing is also <laughs> very important. Something that is related both to Bill and Ted and my podcast is that my signature sign-off, so the thing that I say at the end of every episode, is be excellent to yourselves and each other, which comes directly from my love of Bill and Ted. So there you have it. Well, thank you very much for joining us. For all things Cage Club and Keanu Club and everything, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can find all of our podcasts, find out what we're doing next, what we've already done, all sorts of good stuff. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Kara O'Regan, and we'll see you next time on Keanu Club. Keanu Club.